Ellen. <laughs> good, how are you? Good, good. So let's start this all over again. Um, you know what I was thinking? Um, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Did you ever dream of being in this job? No, I didn't. Um, I don't think there was such a job when I was younger. Um, so that, that explains that one. But also, um, I was very interested in becoming, working in international development. So I imagined myself working out in the field, um, having studied anthropology, um, working huh? in all kinds of exciting foreign places. But instead, I work in a museum and I get to experience those cultures in a, in a slightly different way. Right. Well, you do have an undergraduate degree in geography and anthropology and a master's in history of design. Now, with your background in PR and mm-hmm. marketing, how did you become so knowledgeable about digital media? Uh, well, as you say, I've, I've worked in various roles within the design industry over the last 18 years. Um, so working across PR, marketing, brands, content and communications. Um, and I guess I was working in digital, or probably more specifically then, uh, websites back in the late 90s and early noughties. And uh, digital's really been an increasingly core part of my role um, and has ultimately led me uh, back to the V&A because that's actually where I studied my master's in history of design. So uh, I returned uh, 14 years after I left um, to become head of digital media here. Uh-huh. Okay. And how many people are on your team there, and, and what kind of roles do they play? Um, so I look after both digital media and publishing, and there are 20 people on my team. And there are three core areas that the team covers. Um, one is technology, um, and that includes product management. So we've got a tech team of four developers and a product manager and they're headed up by the tech lead, and um, they make sure that we have uh, an infrastructure, digital infrastructure that's fit for purpose, that performs really, really well and speedily, et cetera. And then mm-hmm. we have a design team, uh, currently of one, um, and he makes sure that all our content and our UX is packaged really well um, in intuitive ways for people. Um, that live up to our standing as a museum of art, design, and performance. And then content is a a huge part of what we do, and that splits across both publishing and digital. Um, And so we have the the team that focuses on books, and then the team who focuses on digital outputs, and they cover both sort of editorial and production. Mm -hmm. Now, is the... um like exhibit design folks, are they a totally separate team? They're a totally separate team. Um, design is, there's a central design team here at V&A, but um, there are other people who um, commission uh, designers as part of their work. Um, so we've got particular mm-hmm. digital design expertise, but that sits within within our team and the digital team. Do you work closely together so you're all on the same page as far as, you know, giving a unified look? Yes, um, absolutely. And I think that's something we're really focusing on right now. Uh, We've recently done a brand refresh exercise that 
Um, it hasn't touched our, our iconic logo, but it has looked at how we express the brand through both print and digital means. And as part of that process, we're looking up to tighten how we do, looking at how we tighten up what we do across the design commissioning process. So, um, so that wherever you encounter um, the, particularly in the context of exhibitions, wherever you encounter the sort of visual identity for the exhibition, it's consistent and coherent. So it's not a matter of picking up a book that looks different from the um, exhibition poster you might have seen on your travels around London that looks different from um, other, you know, the actual experience of being in the exhibition. So we're increasingly making sure that's all really um, commissioned, although by different teams, that we're all uh, working off the same page. So we start off with an identity board so that we all know we're following um, the same approach, even if we're executing in very different ways across 2D, 3D, and digital. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, you've been at the BNA for about four years now. Besides the uh, website refresh, what other projects have you been working on that you're especially proud of? Um, well, we, um, we, we have done a series of digital commissions with our contemporary team here at the VNA. Um, they're called the uh, DAD team, uh, that stands for Digital Architecture and Design. And so they're our curatorial colleagues who look after digital. So they're thinking about how we collect digital, what that means as an institution, how we um, store and conserve and preserve um, digital-born artifacts, etc. And we um, work with them on a series of commissions with contemporary designers and artists who work with the internet and with digital means as a way of executing their work. Um, and I'm really proud of some of the commissions we've done with them. So one being um, the most recent, in fact, being with uh, Stamen Design in um, California, and that's to support our forthcoming exhibition, uh, The Future Starts Here. And um, the guys at Stamen um, had identified that under Stanford University, University there's a five-kilometer-long fiber optic cable, and it's there to detect seismic waves. And Stamen, um, being people who love working with data, looked at the data that was picked up by these cables and turned that into a really interesting visualization, which tells us a lot about what they call um, the in incidental infrastructure that surrounds us. So you can uh, you can look at that if you want to Google big glass microphone and you'll find it. Um, and another okay. one is Exhausting a Crowd, which we did with someone called Carl McDonald, who's done some really interesting stuff. Um, and he was inspired by a book uh, by Georges Perec, um, sort of experimental literature that was called An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris, um, in which he also spent three days sitting on a bench in Paris writing down his observations of the world around him. And so um, we this saw us putting um, a camera inside the department store in Piccadilly Circus in the, in the heart of London, and there's 12 hours of footage, and basically anyone can annotate this film um, online, um, and they can just annotate sort of people and events that occur during that 12-hour loop. Um, and that was to support an exhibition we did called All of This Belongs to You, which really looked on the whole idea of public space and privacy, and um, and also like society's increasing need to sort of sit there annotating every small thing, small thing that we do in our lives, and, and the fact that we're sort of surrounded by CCTV and automated surveillance. So um, those both sort of mm -hmm. pick up really meaty themes and package them in really interesting, compelling ways online. So uh, they're things I'm particularly proud of, I think, in the last few years. Uh -huh. 
Um, is there anyone um, VNA digital project that you think helps attract visitors to the museum more than any other? Um, yes, that would be the website. Um, I think it's probably the most important um, part of our digital state and our digital activity. Um, we get about um, 12 to 14 million uh, visits a year. So um, it's sort of, in terms of its audience, it's uh, about four times the size of um, the actual physical um, visitor, uh, sort of, uh, visitor numbers. And so it's really important that we think about that as an experience in itself because, of course, lots of people aren't able to come to South Kensington or any of our other sites to visit the museum. So um, we're thinking increasingly about that, what that experience means online. Um, so, yes, the, the, the website is really important in the context of driving visits to the museum, but also in terms of some of our commercial targets, um, helping us to identify new ways to convert people to buy memberships, buy tickets, um, etc. So there's sort of much more commercial imperative to what we do. And then also, of course, to open up access to our collections, because um, given that lots of most of our collections are not um, on display, they're in storage, and given mm -hmm. the importance of us as a scholarly institution to provide access to our collections and to our knowledge of those collections, uh, the website plays a really, really important role in helping us to do that. How much of your collection uh, do you have online right now? Have you digitized everything? <laughs> no, I would never in a million years, years um, at the current pace. <laughs> yeah. Um, say again. It, never never in the current pace. It would take about twenty years. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It's a gargantuan exercise. Unfortunately, it's. Um, We've got uh, about 2.3 million uh, objects in our collection, and that's objects as well as archives. And um, we've got uh, about up to, I think it's sort of 80-something percent online. Um, obviously, that uh -huh. figure changes as we acquire new things. and uh, Sometimes they're complex right. things like entire archives, so that sort of throws the stats out slightly, uh, depending on whether they've been digitized or not. So, um, yeah, it's about upper 80s um, in terms of the percentage of our collections that are online. But of those with an image, um, we have only about, I think, 30-something percent. So um, the challenge for us is that we've got a very diverse um, uh, collection. Um, right. It's big and it's sort of very broad as well, and it covers you know everything from medieval staircases, which are obviously quite complex to um, to photograph, and um, carpets that haven't been unrolled for for, for decades or centuries. Um, so you know just the the exercise to um, in, in just capturing those um, as images is quite extensive, um, and then obviously all the uh, compilation of all the other metadata that we need to to make sure that these things can go online and be properly digitized. It's, it's, a, it's a no small undertaking. So it will take a while at the current rate, but we're looking at ways we can speed that up. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking of um, asking volunteers from the public? Um, that has been discussed at certain points and with certain types of objects that might be more appropriate. Um, but um, we're actually looking at um, perhaps doing some experiments around machine learning. I think that's an area I'm particularly interested in, which is where we could um, see how 
how machine intelligence can help speed up that process, uh, identify uh, trends and tags and pieces of information that might be shared across the collection um, so that we can free up curators to do the, um, the bit where they talk about the collections, but in terms of some of the, um, the sort of fields that we use to define some of those um, objects that they might be, they, that might be sped up through machine intelligence and uh, machine learning, which would be very, which would be very interesting. Um, and um, there are also sort of ways to cut up the collection into like objects. We've got a pro program called the Factory Project, which is looking at all our flat stuff in the word and image department. And that's, that's going at quite a pace. But obviously, it's because of the nature of those materials that it makes it much easier. But um, yeah, we're constantly looking for new ways to be able to speed up this process yeah. because um, we know that there's um, an interest for it. But of course, there is the ongoing debate about how much of one's collections actually need to be um, fully digitized, you know, do we need absolutely everything in huge depth online or not? Because that is that was an interesting area of debate, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just read about how um, you acquired the Chinese WhatsApp as your first piece of social media for your collection. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yes, we have, yeah. Um, okay, Very so cool. Yeah, DNA and um, it's... <laughs> Go ahead. No, sorry, we're there's a delay on the line, which is making it a little stilted. So you, you go ahead, and then I'll, I'll follow up. Um, the DNA began a partnership with Made by Many back in 2014 for your digital brand refresh, um, which included the redesign and rebuild of the web platform, which released in April 2016. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this partnership? Sure. Um, when I arrived at the museum uh, exactly four years ago, um, I was struck by um, two things, I guess. One was how the current website looked pretty dated, um, and it was not really reflecting the VNA brand particularly well, um, and the user experience is quite poor. So just from a sort of uh, user point of view, it felt like it was it was sort of not particularly um, compelling as an experience. Um, and on the other hand, um, I had a team uh, of content folk who were spending an inordinate amount of time doing the simplest of tasks. So the technology was actually failing them. The, the way those, the content management system had been configured was... Um, was um, quirky to say the least. Uh, it meant that they were surrounded by uh, hundreds of post-it notes with um, just HTML hacks to do the simplest of things. And um, they were just spending too much of their time doing cutting and pasting and, and formatting jobs that you know the system should have been helping to do the sort of heavy lifting in that sense. So um, I realized that we needed to look at two things, both the sort of brand experience and user experience, but also um, ensure that we've got like real technical uh, rigor behind it. And so I was looking for an agency that could work across that spectrum of both brand and really understand brand, but also technology and really have the sort of rigor to their practice. So um, there weren't that many agencies, I think, that really fit that bill that can work across that spectrum that really understand products and product development, um, but made by many are certainly one of them. So, and they luckily won a tender um, 
back in 2014, which was great. So um, we embarked on a few phases of work with them, which has been incredibly rewarding. And we are now we're left with a very a self-sufficient team who who continue to develop in the sort of uh, from that sort of kernel, that core um, piece of work that we we did with Made by Many and still going strong. Um, what was one of the biggest challenges that you faced with the website refresh? And is there any particular outcome from the refresh that you're especially proud of? Um, the, I mean, this is this is probably not the most obvious part of the answer, but it's um, if you, if if it's about what I'm most proud of, it's actually having having got the business case uh, written and approved. Um, Enabled us to do this um, to do this work was made by many because um, sorry, there's a really distracting sound on the line. I'm not sure if you had that ready. Anyway, let me just recap. So um, we um, we we had to go through writing a business case to get the funding to work on this project was made by many, and that was a four month um, a four month exercise in itself. It was actually about the same time to get the business case approved as it was to actually. Um, build a new website, um, and so I think it's it's interesting to explore some of those behind the scenes things. You know, we we see in front of us now a lovely new website and loads of other digital project products that have, have been spawned from it. Um, but that belies uh, sort of a huge amount of work that um, went into getting the organisation on board and um, putting money behind the need to do this. Um, and it took uh, it took quite a lot of walking around the building, uh, getting people's inputs, um, getting ideas signed off and, and you know, ultimately signed and sealed so that we could progress with the project that made by many, but it was absolutely worth all the effort. So, um, yes, that's, that's an area I'd be most proud of, I think. Mm -hmm. um, in my class um, I'm taking right now, Developing Museum Web Projects, uh, we're tasked with outlining how we would develop a website. Um, what research tools, methods, and processes did the V&A use in your website refresh? Um, well, uh, if you're interested, there is a, um, a blog post I wrote a while back that explores just that, um, and it's called Choosing the Right Yardstick, and it explores what different research tools that you can use at different points in the digital development process, and it sort of consolidates some of the things we've learned from working on our new website and on other projects as well. And okay. in there, I tell, I explore the idea of the three Ws, um, which is always our starting point of identifying what you're measuring, um, when in the process, because of course different tools are relevant at different points, whether you're just starting or whether you're actually measuring something that exists, and why, to what end, because um, that's really important that we're identifying um, the, the purpose behind, our intention behind doing this research. Um, because sometimes people want you to evaluate things to prove to a funder they were a good idea. Uh, we like to focus um, on the user in terms of our research. So we'll always start with some very broad um, user research that identifies the sort of scope of what we could or should do um, and helps give a little bit more definition. Um, and then because we use an agile approach rather than a waterfall approach, we um, have a very iterative cycle where we are um, sort of doing this discovery phase and uh, sort of design and development and then testing. 
and that we do that um, through several cycles. So that gives us lots of insight along the way to ensure that we're building the right thing for people and not going off on the wrong track. So, um, yes, there's a whole blog post that explores that in a lot more detail, but um, to my mind, it's one of the most rewarding parts of the digital design process is that, you know, we get to speak to people um, and help um, use their insights and um, their experiences of your emerging product to make sure it's really fit for purpose. And working in a museum, we're really lucky because we've got galleries full of people where we can do things like guerrilla testing to check, you know, check in on where we're at with the product. Okay. How do you gauge what success looks like on your various digital projects? Um, well, we will always um, sit down as a group, and that will be the digital team and all other stakeholders and really identify what success looks like. Um, for whom and when, and then we identify how best we can measure that. And of course, that might change as a, as a, as a, as a thing progresses. Um, but we we make sure we've, we're thinking about that early on because we don't want to um, find ourselves sort of partway through a project um, and then discover that um, we've forgotten to build something that would enable us to derive deeper insight into people's needs and motivations. So um, we make sure we do that early on in the process. And it, Depending on the nature of the project, it'll reveal what type of um, type of tools we might want to use. So, if it's something that exists already, we'd be using um, sort of things like online remote testing um, um, methods um, and services where we can. Uh, ask a lot of people, depending on you know what the need is. It might be that we're going for volume or it might be something that's more in-depth and that only requires five people to engage in a much more detailed way. Um, but either way, we might use some more um, remote testing methods or it might be within a lab or in the building. Um, but if it's something more speculative, then we'll do some sort of more traditional design research right at the beginning of the process. Great. Um, do you have, currently have a digital strategy at the V&A? Um, it might surprise you that we don't have a standalone digital strategy. Um, it really underpins everything we do. Um, it's a core part of our current organizational strategy, which runs from 2015 to 2020. And um, of the five pillars, digital is one of those five pillars. The others concern visitor experience and our um, collections and their connection to the creative economy, um, our international work, and our commercial work. So digital is the, the fifth of those pillars. But it also services all of those pillars as well. So digital is a core part of our visitor experience. It's a core part, part of how we um, get people to connect with and engage with and learn from our collections. Um, also, international international reach can only be achieved through digital means as well as through physical presence. Um, and then mm -hmm. commercially, obviously, digital is an increasingly important part of how we how we drive uh, a sort of broaden our income. Um, so it's a core part of everything we do at the, at the VNA. But there's not a there's not a document I can share with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm curious, what, what do you think of apps like breadcrumbs that charge for scaven to go on scavenger hunts in six of the museums in London? Um, I think I'm sort of I'm slightly mixed on this one. Um, I think in principle, um, anything that helps us get our content um, to people that might not have heard of the V&A is a good thing. Um, on the other hand. 
and, and also it solves the challenge of getting people around a complex building and to ensure that they see all the musty right. things in the building. And that's a challenge for us. So this is an interesting way of, you know, using a treasure hunt as a mechanism to do that. Um, we've recently launched a, a product for children, a mobile, um, children and families. It's a mobile game. And it does a sort of not dissimilar thing in that we understand we've got a sort of hugely complex building in it utterly bewildering and daunting for some people and we need to think of playful, imaginative ways to get people around the building. So, you know, breadcrumbs is one way to do that. Um, I think some of the feedback is, is in that people don't like having their heads stuck in their phones. Um, that <laughs> certainly um, uh, relates to research we've done. We've done a lot of user research about mobile right. experience in the building and, and people are just reticent to use, um, certainly in the context of the V&A, and I think this is possibly less so for other types of museums, science museums, for example, perhaps it's, it's less, less of an issue, but here in the V&A we've got all this incredible, um, you know, visually arresting material. Um, people tell us um, that they don't want to have their heads buried in their phones. So that's always the risk of, of something like um, a, this sort of treasure hunt type experience. We need to, in terms of the UX, it's really important to try and ensure a heads up um, kind of experience. And we did a lot of work around that for um, a game I mentioned earlier called Secret Seekers. Again, there's a blog post you can mm -hmm. read with more detail on that because it's a really fine line to tread between getting a mobile um, experience that helps you um, uncover more of the museum but doesn't leave you buried with your head in a phone because that's not what anyone wants to do. So, yes, uh, I mean, in terms of apps, etc., you know, apps are expensive and, and right now we don't see the return on investment. So we're looking at, um, right. you know, if, if other apps and products want to feature our content, that's an interesting way of reaching new audiences and getting on their radar. So um, that to us is a, a sort of interesting avenue to explore rather than creating dedicated apps ourselves. Yeah, I think one of the things I read about them was they were trying to get younger visitors in museums, which is always a good thing. <laughs> now, do you think... Um, Absolutely. I mean, we... Go ahead. I'm sorry, you broke up then. Um, I was just going to say in terms of younger audiences, there are lots of ways to do that. And I think with, you know, we've we've got a, a really... I think we were one of the, certainly in the UK, the first museum to do a Friday late um, event. And we get, I mean, a huge amount of young people into our museum. And not just young people, people of all generations. But depending on what the um, nature is of our Friday late, we get a huge crowd. Um, and it's, there are lots of different ways to get young people into museums. We also do a digital design weekend. So I think, you know, as museums, it's important that we think creatively about how to diversify our audiences and get lots of um, people who don't necessarily um, first think of a museum as a place to hang out on the weekend to get them to come because we all have things to offer. We just need to think about new ways to package that and to attract new audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think your audience is looking for something more like um, SF MoMA's doing, where you just put your um, your smartphone away and the location beacons will pop up, you know, an audio recording about what artwork you're near? Um, we have explored beacons. Um, we have, I mean, the difficulty for us is that we've got such 
a large museum. I mean, it is an urban myth, but the urban myth says that we've got seven miles of galleries. And even if that is a myth, it, it feels like seven miles, especially when I'm late for a meeting, getting from A to B. So, you know, if you imagine decking out the whole place with beacons, it would be supremely costly, even though that individually they're, they're quite cheap. Um, and to develop an app, um, because that's the way we'd need to um, use that particular location service, it, it would become very expensive. And I think you need to think about ways where that becomes a really engaging experience. And SFMOMA has done a brilliant job um, of, of doing that. Um, so yes, in principle, keeping your phone out the way is absolutely the way to go. But um, thinking about how you deliver the, the, the content, it's not just, um, it's got to be more than a standard audio to and so that's the challenge of thinking how you can create an experience that happens to be driven by a mobile rather than saying, starting off saying, I want, I want to develop a museum app. Mm -hmm. uh, as someone whose job is to keep an eye on digital media and technology trends, has anything caught your eye recently and what should people be paying attention to? Um, I think I, mean, I touched on machine learning earlier. I think that's a really interesting area because when you're at a museum, you obviously deal with lots and lots of units of data. We've got um, big collections. We have all kinds of other data, and there's um, interesting things that machines could be assisting us with, and I think there's um, some in interesting projects out there around machine learning. Um, and uh, I also think uh, looking at immersive experiences and technologies, that's another area that's um, ripe for exploration. Of course, lots of us have already explored in this area, but I think the technology keeps moving at a pace, and um, it's interesting to see how that's changing, how we deliver not just exhibition experiences, but thinking into terms of the permanent galleries as well. Um, what is your approach to digital media during periods of political turbulence? Is it okay for the V&A to have a political voice on some issues? Or should they um, social media posts always remain neutral? Um, it's a really interesting area that we're exploring. Uh, we've, I mean, typically, traditionally, when I arrived at the museum, we, we certainly were stepping back from entering into any sort of political debate. But um, we've now got a new director who was um, a former shadow minister for education. Um, and so the design education agenda is taking much more of a role in our communications. And there's a really important debate happening right now on STEM subjects and importance of design in the curriculum, which is gradually being eroded, which is, you know, tragic. Um, it's, it's such a core cool part um, of, of, of a decent education. And so um, increasingly the sort of political agenda is having much more of a presence in, in our activity and particularly in social. But I think it's still down to individual voices um, within the museum as well as the sort of museum voice itself to um, to really sort of enter into those debates. Um, we have lots of amazingly expert people here with lots of interesting opinions and I think it's part of our duty to, to, to amplify some of those voices. Mm -hmm. Do you see AR or VR playing a larger role in the digital arena at BNA? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, like most museums, we've experimented with both. Um, and most recently, we did a VR experience with the Google Cultural Institute as part of their We Wear Culture project. And that one taught us a huge amount um, about creating a narrative in a 360-degree environment. Um, which was a sort of a new challenge for us. 
Um, and it, but it is expensive, though, and I think whilst the technology is still in its um, relative infancy, it's, it's wiser for institutions like ours to collaborate with partners such as Google Cultural Institute um, rather than making that huge investment ourselves. So I think at the moment we are much more um, exploratory and experimental in how we're approaching this, um, and uh, it's not like I mean. The Recently, I've interviewed about whether we have a VR strategy. I think we're certainly not at the point where we have a VR strategy. We're currently undertaking experiments here and there and learning from those to sort of input into what we do more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, considering how many hours you spend on the computer during the day, do you, how much time do you spend on the computer at night at home? I'm not quite sure why you're asking this question. I think I'm going to decline from answering it. It's probably too much. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> what is your favorite app and why? Um, so, I mean, apps tend to exist on an, a spectrum of two extremes. I think on the one hand, you've got absolute utility and functionality, and on the other, the sort of delight and magic. And I think I, like most people, tire of the latter, so I tend to have the, the apps that stay on my phone tend to be the ones that make my everyday life easier, things like bus checker and city mapper. Um, I live somewhere that's not near a tube, so I really rely on those functional apps like that. Um, and, and we've touched on museum apps. I think, you know, um, like most people, I don't have a museum app on my phone um, because we've got enough stuff on our phones. And especially if you're a parent, you're taking loads of pictures of your kids, and you've probably got other things that are cluttering up your phone without wanting to put a museum app on it in addition. Yeah. Um, where do you see the digital future of museums heading? Um, well, again, we, we touched on this around um, immersive experiences, and I think um, mm -hmm. that's certainly something that museums have done well, and I think they're exploring new, we all are exploring new technologies to, um, to think, you know, beyond the um, encounters within our exhibitions to the broader permanent collections and permanent galleries too. Um, I think an area that we're looking in at the moment is, is mixed reality. So we're thinking about the sort of interplay between the physical and the virtual. Um, we've actually just put a pitch in, a bid in for some funding to prototype a mixed reality experience for a manuscript by Charles Dickens. And I think this is something we're really interested in and in looking at how you can make the technology um, transparent, not a sort of clunky part of the experience. Because of course at the moment with virtual reality, you've got the, sort of the, the barrier of a, a clunky device that becomes quite a solitary experience. And of course, museums are typically about social experience. And how do you, how do you use technology to um, get the best of the virtual world, um, as well as sort of enabling physical encounters with objects? So that's an area we're really interested in, and how we can think about um, using technology to give more creative agency to people in their encounters between um, themselves and objects. Mm -hmm. um, one last question. Any parting advice for museum studies students? Um, I've been asked this before, and I wish I had some beautifully prepared bon mots, but um, I think my, my this speaks more to me and my hang-ups. I think I always see myself as a generalist and have seen that as a, a bad thing, but I would say um, 
it's good to be a generalist ultimately and you know staying broad and and curious about lots of things is not necessarily a bad thing so i think i would encourage people not to feel or succumb to the urge to specialize if they don't feel like they're ready for it just yet right okay and then go after what you love basically exactly (laughs) okay well thanks again i'm sorry for all the troubles we had with the phone day but thank you so much for taking time to talk to me i've really enjoyed it i hope it all makes sense there's a slight delay in the line so uh, hopefully it all makes sense to anyone listening but it's been a really interesting (laughs) chat so thank you very much okay take care and thanks again Okay, bye-bye.